right, welcome to episode 16 of the Strength Ratio podcast. We have a special guest with us today. Our Eric Sobolski is not with us, but as we are bringing more guests on the podcast who share overarching philosophies of training, we want to bring to you people, uh, not just those who you've heard of before, but some who you may not have heard of who are doing some really wonderful things and who also have some very interesting pasts. Now, uh, Eric, he played football at Weber State. Eric had an interesting uh, 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 teammate that he wanted us to interview. And this teammate went on not just to play at the collegiate level, but also in the Canadian Football League and even signed a contract in the NFL. Uh, This same athlete who you'll be hearing from today now works with athletes of all ages and experience levels in improving health and shares many of our philosophies pertaining to safe and sustainable training over the long term. And I introduce Dimitri Sumpas. Dimitri, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on here. So, Dimitri, not only were you a professional football player, but you were quite the, the power lifter as well. And if we can start with just a brief introduction into your training as a professional athlete on and off the field and perhaps how that training evolved uh, when your career ended. Okay, well, um, I started training when I was really young. When I was 12 years old, I kind of, uh, you know, I got a weight set out of a garage sale and started working out and reading muscle fitness magazines. And and uh, I... I fell into football when I was in high school and I knew that my training would really reflect the impact that it had uh, in terms of my performance on the field. So I wanted to, when I went to college, I wanted to learn as much as I could about it. So I majored in human performance. I got a minor in coaching nutrition and, you know, as things went on and on, I continued to read and continued to, uh, you know, seek out the answers and improve my training and that's what led me onto uh, powerlifting. I was reading a book by Verkoshansky um, on SST sports specific training, and there was a there was a study on there about NFL offensive linemen, and they measured different strengths characteristics and how that correlated to performance. And what they found was uh, maximal effort strength was uh, the number one correlative to NFL offensive lineman performance. So. I really started to focus on powerlifting and driving up my one rep max and, and getting as strong as I could to help with uh, with my performance in football. Um, so I got really focused on that. And then when I transitioned out, I, uh, I started to explore a lot more movement, uh, more functional and sustainable uh, training because what I found was that although I could move all these huge weights, I'm sure as you can imagine, a lot of my mobility and, and performance uh, in other aspects had rapidly declined, you know, so it was a big sacrifice that I made to, uh, to kind of narrow down my focus and really specialize my training. So I started to broaden my approach again and, and uh, create more of a balanced and a holistic approach to that. That's very cool. When you were training, as you mentioned, as a professional athlete, the specificity of powerlifting sounds like it perhaps was a good compliment in that the intensity must have been so high, though volume so low, that you could perhaps run 
those two programs, so to speak, together without there being too much volume distraction? Did you find that the absolute strength of the uh, powerlifting training complemented more of the endurance aspects of whether it was just a football game or just football practice? Well, so what I what I found was actually doing powerlifting actually substantially increased my conditioning or my repeated outputs for football. And, you know, I don't know if this would apply to other skill positions, but for linemen, I followed a West side barbell template for the most part. And I was truly doing like maximal effort training probably every other week. So Uh I would lift heavy probably once or twice a month, like really heavy. But the other days were more focused around volume and especially the dynamic effort days because um, we would do 8 to 12 sets of speed squats, you know. So we're doing three reps with like a minute break. And, you know, if you really think about that uh, and you think about football, you know, you'll have a 10-play drive with, you know, dynamic outputs. So what I found was if I was speed squatting – 400 pounds and I got that up to 500 pounds my outputs were higher and therefore I was in better shape so so there was a high correlation between the dynamic effort training and how high those outputs were and how fast the bar was moving versus football so oh wow very cool and when you work with clients now who perhaps have goals pertaining to something less specific um, maybe they want to have fat loss, muscle uh, mass improvements, or just improve overall quality of life. Are there aspects from those football days, even though it was so specific, as well as those powerlifting days that you see as being very important themes in either your approach uh, to athlete communication or approach to programming? Yeah, so I I think there's a fundamental keystone there for me. I I understand the importance of strength training and how that largely carries over to all activities in life, Uh, just having more structural integrity and um, just all the benefits that come with strength training, um, you know, is is a huge benefit to clients. So so there is a – I tee up my workouts with a a warm-up, three exercises that are functional movements then we go into a strength training period where we focus on a squat or a deadlift or some kind of major lifter component it could even be work capacity and then we and then we wind things down with another three or four exercises of functional movements and that's typically how i build my programs and and for those of you who are curious already to uh, learn more about Dimitri, you can follow him as the strength shaman and the business name is the same, correct? Strength shaman. Yeah. So in this interim between uh, Dimitri, the professional athlete and Dimitri, uh, the strength shaman, you spent time as a strength and conditioning coach, correct? For uh, the same team that you had previously played for in Canada or a different team? Yeah, the same team. So, okay. Yeah. So what happened was I, I ended up getting a concussion in 2013 and, um, I, I felt like my career at that point was, was done. It was pretty bad. And I always said to myself, you know, if I get seriously injured or anything like that, then I would, I would walk away from the game. I mean, it's not like I'm making millions of dollars, you know, I need to be functional and be capable after, after this. So 
I just decided, I just knew that I was going to walk away. But what I noticed was that uh, a lot of the training um, that was being done with the team, I felt like could be could have been improved. Um, you know, I think there was a few areas, key areas or components that were missing. So what I did was I, I noticed that we were suffering particularly from ACL injuries. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not sure on the exact stats, but, uh, but I, I would say, I think there was, uh, there was probably about an average of like 10 a season for, for 2012, 2013, which, you know, um, maybe not all of those were on the roster, you know, that's kind of debatable, but, uh, but, um, you know, I know that, that, that many people were kind of hobbling around on crutches and, and, you know, I kind of delved into some of the science and the research and, and at that time there was uh, a bunch of studies being done on college soccer players. Um, and so I created this injury prevention program with, uh, that incorporated these studies and I did a case study of the team and I said, okay, these are the injuries that are happening for the team right now. This is what the science says about each of these injuries. And if we apply these methods into a comprehensive training program, we should be able to reduce injuries by X percent. And so I, uh, I submitted this proposal and, and, you know, thankfully they gave me an opportunity to um, kind of administer the program and take on the role of a strength conditioning coach for the team. And what we found was that, uh, the next year we only had one ACL injury and, and the, the wow. player got cleared after six and a half months. So, um, you know, I mean, it is what it is, but, uh, since then we had zero ACL injuries, um, up until my last year, 2016. And then since I walk away, walked away from the team, I'm not sure what the ACL injury situation is right now. Well, that, I mean, that's a tremendous accomplishment accomplishment. Now, for those of you who are, are less familiar with, the, this particular uh, anatomy, a ligamentous anatomy of the knee, is that we have uh, these ligaments that prevent what you can think of as this forward translation of the thigh bone relative to the lower leg bone. So in football and in soccer, ACL injuries are, seem to be prevalent because you have these decelerating uh, forward motion twisting. Mm-hmm. So, bit of echo coming through but you know again uh, forward motion that requires deceleration with this twisting action that is the mechanism of injury so being mindful as as i'm sure you were uh, and as evidenced by your success rates what was it specifically in training that you thought to involve and change uh relative to what they had been doing prior uh so what i found was the biggest benefit was giving athletes specific uh interventions so if i found that there was limitations in joint range or it looked like there was muscle asymmetries uh i would give athletes things to work on specifically and what i found was that those interventions made all the difference because what i noticed was when i looked at the data at the end of the year was that athletes were were getting minor injuries and those were warning signs that a catastrophic injury was going to happen down the road. So if we made an intervention and we got that athlete corrected, um, then they wouldn't get those catastrophic injuries and they would remain healthy. Now, is this something that you would, um, look at in the form of like a, a screen? Did it come in the form of uh, improving or changing or refining the exercise selection of the program? Could you maybe speak more to the specifics of the the screen itself or the exercises? Uh, so, I mean, this is kind of where, where it becomes like complicated for the most part. I mean, every athlete is very different. So I would, 
you know, I would just, I would, I would be in the gym watching athletes work out and I would give them exercises or things to do. A lot of the breakouts were from, you know, the, um, FMCS or FMS, sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, doing a lot of, uh, joint distraction stuff, um, training the posterior chain, making sure that athletes like, were moving symmetrically, you know, and, and, and just if there was anything wonky going on with their biomechanics or felt like they were missing something, I would just intervene and say, Hey man, you know, you, you really got to work on your ankle mobility or, you know, things like that. Right. And, and there was a little bit of, uh, learning involved as well, you know, um, noticing that uh you know defensive backs um they're having a tight internal external rotation in their hips which led me to believe that uh, their core stability core wasn't stabilizing properly you know and then talking to different peers and different people you know it's um training the adductors and training the low ab and and getting the glutes engaged and and doing all that all those sorts of things to make sure that you know dbs are healthy and they're performing well yeah, so it sounds like perhaps it was more of a complete program than what they had been receiving. You're kind of addressing things uh, on a, a holistic level. Um, and, and, of course, your results speak to that. I, I remember Sovo was saying how a challenge with ACL injury on the whole with football, especially given the season, and I don't know if the uh, Canadian Football League was different, but he said that a challenge was that because of the amount of torque produced at the ankle, especially if you have someone coming in for a hit at that rotational uh, angle, um, as you're trying to decelerate or cut yourself, it's really hard to prepare the body for something like that in training, just because it is such a tremendous force. And there might be perhaps in the future different ways that football players can acclimate in the off season as these injury rates seem to peak in the beginning of the season and then decrease uh, as the season rolls on. Um, I'm just curious, did you guys do anything in terms of like reactivity tests and getting them to, I'm sure while you assess them, you would assess them in a way that perhaps resembled specific ways they'd have to cut and twist and move in training or rather on the field? Uh, and maybe this comes from like years of just playing professional football and just studying, um, health and wellness. You know, I, I really feel like I've developed an eye for, for seeing when things are, are not working well in people, you know? So, so I've, I've actually gone away from a lot of assessments. I can't, I can't box it up into one little thing and say, Hey, you know, this is, this is what it is. You know, I think, I think it's just observing athletes and over time, um, you know, you, you kind of understand, okay, this looks good. This doesn't. And just being really thorough and attentive and, and really being there for your athletes, you know? Well, that sounds tremendous, especially because a problem that I know exists in America with strength and conditioning coaches is that you have uh, a basically a, a deficit of coaches relative to the number of athletes you have and NCAA regulations are changing to have more coaches per number of athletes per practice where it's almost unheard of to have this level of attentiveness and nothing better than not just someone who cares and has a good eye, but has the experience to bolster that. Um, so that's, that's really fascinating. Do you, um, see at least in the sport we we're just while we're on the topic of football as we go away from ACLs, uh, any things that athletes could do 
whether they're impact athletes or, or like combat sport athletes to prevent against concussion, uh, maybe even just speaking from your personal experience. And if you involve any of that type of training with just your general population for overall health of the uh, neck musculature. Yeah. So I, I think really like what we're seeing with a lot of these high school kids is that they're, you know, everyone knows about uh, kyphosis, right? lordosis that sort of thing upper cross syndrome and i think a lot of kids you know they play a lot of video games they're on snapchat all day and and you know they really have a, that head forward posture you know I'm, I'm training a young man right now um a few of them you know that have gone on to get scholarships uh and um what i've noticed is that that you know when you you ask them to go into that thoracic spine extension they actually have no idea how to do that and 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 so you know to throw them into the mix and to and to tell them to start hitting people, you know, especially with their helmet, uh, you know, and develop uh, that anterior neck uh, musculature even more. I think uh, it, it just only feeds the feeds the problem, right? So I think, you know, children are largely inactive. Uh, they're, they're very underprepared to play a sport like football or any contact sports. Um, you know, I, th- I think uh, you can, you can agree with me when saying, you know, when, when, you know, the first time you picked up a barbell, you could probably lift, you know, 300 pounds. And, and, you know, I think most kids now would be hard pressed to pick up the bar with a, with a flat back. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And so I, I just think that, you know, the, the inactivity or the, you know, the lack of preparedness in, in young children is really what's feeding, feeding these concussion issues. And I, I think you're right. It's going to take like, a really diligent uh, strength conditioning professional to help correct these problems and help get kids on track to have a healthy career where they can protect themselves from some of those rotational forces and those impacts that are going to happen, you know? Yeah. And and hopefully we continue to see refinements and improvements with policy as well in the sport. Um, But I think you, you bring up such a good point is that there seems to be, even in just, you know, I'm only uh, 26 turning 27 when i i look at my upbringing versus kids nowadays there just seems to be less playtime and we always emphasize the importance of not just times of uh deloading volumes or particular intensities but just times dedicated towards uh skill refinement and general physical preparedness where when i think about my playtime like as a kid well that was sport right like that that gpp was there through sport. When you look at someone like a a lot of these CrossFitters, someone like a rich Froning, he played just about every sport out there, right? He was getting his GPP through play through, uh, through the sports that he was involved in. And if these kids aren't simply just playing, it makes their proprioception uh, that much more challenging. It seems it even makes it more challenging. uh, Just their, their like men, not mental involvement, but their uh, ability to kind of focus in on a task or just kind of handle the the stressors of the gym and have those coping mechanisms, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, so a lot of what I do in my functional training is I try to create, you know, once in a while I'll create tasks that are confusing to, to, to clients and, and they have to mentally kind of solve the challenge. Right. So whether you, you, uh, you know, you, destabilize somebody or you add in another variable or something like that um and and what you find is yeah absolutely like there's certain people that really struggle with those things and then there's other people that can just 
you know, knock it out of the park. And so, you know, I had a, had a woman who uh, I was te- showing a hinge row and she was a synchronized swimmer. Well, guess what? Like, you know, she, she nailed it, but uh, there's other people, you know, for the life of me, it's like, okay, I can't teach you this. Uh, you know, it's going to take, you know what I mean? So oh, we yeah. got, we got to break this down into steps for you. And then maybe like in two or three programs on the road, we can, we can, we can get there. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it comes down to these mental maps when you're younger and, and how you're developing that, uh, cerebellum and, and, in you know, just the, the amount of activity and the variation of activity that you're doing. And I, I don't think that's anything new, right? Like, you know, you read some of that great cook, uh, um, textbooks and, and things like that. And, and, you know, it's, it's pretty apparent, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think if someone were to just at first glance, look at, um, the content that you put out, there is no lack of variation involving carries, uh, involving, uh, odd op, not necessarily odd object implements, but there's certainly many implements that you're using to lift. Uh, I know there's plenty of trap bars and tires, uh, combat ropes and sleds. When you consider and think about how you approach training and the progression uh, of an athlete's, or I should say the development of an athlete, do you start with this, this GPP model that you went to after football and then progress them towards specific goals that they may have? Or do you like keeping to this functional type GPP model throughout training despite how specific they, they may ultimately get? Uh, I, I tend to keep uh, just more of a basic GPP model. What I do is I increase the, the uh, I play with different variables. So I can increase the, the, their capacity, um, you know, by increasing volume, increasing weights. That's obvious. Uh, but I can also increase the complexity as well, right? So there's a complexity versus capacity kind of paradigm that I use. And that happens with progressions of exercise, progressions, regressions, lateralizations, and how I'm complementing and pairing exercises in my workouts, you know, to create the desired outcome. I always think that, um, that, uh, physio, you know, and some of these other trainers that kind of miss the mark because they try to target certain muscles. Um, and I think it's really up to the trainer to create the right context to, uh, to get elicit the outcomes that they want. So by selecting the appropriate exercises um, to create um, a training stimulus that's going to happen more on a global level. I don't know if that kind of makes sense, but oh, for sure. But yeah, rather than breaking it down to kind of like a nuts and bolts kind of thing, I try to keep things global and I try to um, create adaptations kind of that way. Yeah, so looking at the the bigger picture of, all right, here's a workout, kind of what's the desired stimulus, it sounds like, takes the priority over like, all right, well, what uh, muscle group are we hitting with a certain amount of volume per week idea, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it depends on, on the goal, right? And then there's different characteristics. Like I'm training somebody who's uh, who's getting ready for an expedition in Nepal right now. And so um, doing strength training to help with, you know, structural integrity, different doing, building an aerobic base, uh, doing some anaerobic work, you know, so we're, and then trying to make sure that that uh, person is moving well on top of it, you know, so challenging 
different movement paradigms progressing from, you know, a single leg um, dumbbell deadlift to up to step ups, right. And, and, and kind of that sort of thing, right. So increasing the complexity as well as improving all the variables, um, all of the, um, you know, the capacity variables along the way. For sure. And, and it seems to be based on what we've mentioned, not just with, uh, I, I would say children or adolescent trainees to have these uh, complex exercises that require quite uh, good focus and proprioception and locomotion, such as just say, can someone lunge or maybe even like with a, a weight in their hand or overhead, can they coordinate something that may be very easy for someone who's well-trained, but whether they're a young trainee or someone who's just totally untrained and they're coming into this later in life to start with this task mastery and progress it, I think is a very cool uh, concept. And and it sounds like you have a a very thorough system for how you evolve these, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the strength of, you know, doing it for a long time is that you kind of start to build a recipe and you understand how to progress people from one step to the next. I've got another client who's a, used to be a gymnast. I mean, she's, you know, over 50 now and, and, uh, now she can almost do a pull up when she started with me. It was like TRX rows were, you know, uh, a challenging exercise for her. And so it's just, it's cool to see how fast the progression can happen when, again, you have some of those mental maps uh, when you're younger and, and, and so everyone's going to progress at kind of a different pace. And you just got to meet that person where they're at. And and then you got to just try to help them expand the paradigm around that. Um, That makes me think of the deconditioning cycle uh, where, you know, as you get deconditioned, um, you tend to disuse things or, oh, I can't do that anymore. Or or maybe you get injured and then you can't do things anymore. And, And that movement paradigm just starts to kind of shrink down and collapse. And so I really feel like my job, especially with, older folks is to help expand or push that movement paradigm back out, you know, to build the strength and then to increase the complexity and to start to reintroduce exercises that they normally wouldn't be comfortable with, but in a safe and responsible manner. And, and so far I've had really tremendous success with that. You know, I I think what you said at the end there, it's done in a safe and appropriate manner or or safe and, and sustainable manner it has to be the foundation of your care for the client. I sometimes see, and of course, maybe in competition, even though I tell my athletes, even in competition, I want them moving a particular way and have had the, the task uh, mastery and skill refinement to be able to perform in competition as they would in training. You kind of see this attention to what is safe and appropriate go out the window under these circumstances for people just who are involved in, or we'd consider to be general population, just totally go out the window. As Sobo jokes, and he, he says, although it's really not a joking matter, you know, if you have a, a client who is, uh, you know, a stay-at-home parent, or uh, they they're a doctor, like they can't afford to be injured, right, in training or by their training. Like the training has to be something that encourages their growth and helps prevent these uh, injuries that would otherwise happen in life from falls or from perhaps, I don't know, say like a minor car crash, making that instance like less traumatic and less severe. Uh, 
I just have like zero tolerance when I see certain videos uh, of perceived exertion and intensities uh, being valued and seen as uh, being superior to good movement quality. You know, people say that you're just being a technique stickler, but I think it's just otherwise not really caring for the well-being of your athlete. Yeah, and I, I think that's like a big point on the in all this. I mean, obviously, CrossFit gyms get a bad rap for for a lot of this, and you know, I think that's why there's a lot of value in considering the complexity of the exercise and understanding where that athlete or that client is at. Because if you have disregard for complexity and you're all about capacity, then that's a recipe for disaster, right? So I think it's it's just not being ignorant to the fact that there is a complexity issue at hand and you really have to consider movement quality. And I think that's really what differentiates a really great coach from somebody who, you know, could potentially get a weekend certification. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's it, it, it now is, uh, especially if the coach has valuable information that isn't coming out of left field, it's consistent with how other coaches generally teach movement or how they consider uh, sound programming to to put that content out there even though it may seem like other people are saying things that are similar or it's pertaining to the same topic you never know who you whose attention you might catch right so you know not only in crossfit but i see this in globo gyms i see videos of division one uh, american football like university weight rooms and you just see really crazy stuff um that isn't based on movement quality. Uh, it's just either based on not being informed for someone who might be at the local YMCA uh, ego, uh, getting in the way of a, a competitive division one athlete to, to push weights in a inappropriate, uh, unsustainable way, or just a, a coach who is perhaps concerned more with how an athlete feels from uh, like an exertion and satisfaction standpoint than their long-term health and wellness. Uh, so it, I think it's it's our, our responsibility to just continue to put out, though it may seem repetitive at times, that good work, if you know what I mean. Oh, 100%. I've got a smile on my face right now. You can't see it. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, uh, you know, I'm training a young man now, and he's going to go play Division One football. He was playing high school football for Premier uh, High School in the States. Um, and every time this young man comes back, I'm having to tone down the weights and make sure that he's squatting with good biomechanics, benching with good biomechanics, because I know the minute he goes back, he's going to be in that setting and, and it's just going to be like, you know, guns a blazing, like, oh, yeah. you know, let's just let loose and, and uh, push it as hard as we can. So I really feel like it's my job or my role in that to dial things back into almost hyper be on the other side of that, right. To, to be more on the quality side, quality control. And then when he goes back, then he's going to be, have that foundation, that base to at least, you know, do the lift somewhat correctly. Oh, one, you know, one of our, uh, one of the co-owners of our business, who's often on this podcast with me and with Sobo, his name's Kyle, who, who I, you were in brief communication with in setting this all up. Um, he has an, uh, he works with a lot of uh, football players and high school athletes. And he told his one athlete because there, there was a testing day coming up, right? And uh, they were benching, they were trap bar, deadlifting, et cetera. And he told his athlete, he said, it may be hard and you might not be lifting as much weight as the other kids, but I, I 
totally prohibit you from losing technique. And he listened. His, his athlete's a great kid. He listened. But he also sent a video of another kid. He goes to pull a weight off the ground. And, you know, like with a trap bar, it's already an upright squat-like posture. <laughs> this kid, though, the second he pulls, has like immediate turtle shell. And the concentric motion probably took like five one thousandths counts to stand. And it was just it should be like outlawed. That coach should be fired and it's encouraged, right? Like you hear the cheering and everyone's going nuts. It's like these kids are, are, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old and you have a really good shot to totally mess them up. Yeah. Especially when they're so young, right? Like, you know, what's, what's it all for? I mean, you got to let them, you got to let them loose. I, I believe, I believe that. So it's just, how do you let them loose? Uh, appropriately and effectively and and you would hope that training was for training where you reinforce proper good biomechanics so that when competition or time to compete you know they they can execute the lifts correctly and and that's a big part of it right is that technical mastery of of what it is those athletes are doing and if that obviously this young man who was you know lifting with poor technique was was probably ill prepared for for whatever he was doing and and you know and and then that's the end result right is these athletes these young men have you know poor lifting techniques or poor habits uh that that could set in for for the long duration of their life until they potentially work with somebody who's knowledgeable and can correct them and they're gonna have to have the patience to to undo a lot of that uh damage or poor coaching that has happened before you know and and i see i see that quite a bit too is people with poor technique who have always had back pain and you know well it's a classic i, I don't i don't do deadlifts i don't do anything because it hurts my back and okay well let's you know let's let's take a look and see what things look like and you know you take a video and you're like okay this is your back like this is why you know and you and, and you just go down that rabbit hole with them and and you have to undo the damage and kind of explain to them yeah like this is uh this is the process this is the way and you know, it's, it's not for everybody. And the other thing I realized too, is that sometimes people just want to go, you know, and I think that's another, you know, I don't, I don't mean to rag on CrossFit here, but, uh, you know, I do get people that kind of transition over. They kind of want to play in the field that, uh, of, of what I'm preaching and they'll come over and, um, and uh, they want to go, they want to have that feeling of high exertion. And, and, you know, if their bodies just aren't prepped for it or their biomechanics are really off, uh, I just won't put them there, you know. And, and I think a lot of people struggle from that. I've had people walk away from the training because they felt like it was too easy or wasn't challenging enough. Uh, and, and in reality, we were just building the foundation or the function for them to, to move forward. But, you know, until you develop and correct those key uh, keystones, they're never going to be able to progress the, the way that they want to. Yeah. And, you know, I think CrossFit methodology, at least as it's taught in their seminars, is that they, they teach this is that you have to have mechanics, consistency of those mechanics, and then only that intensity. Though it does seem weird to me uh, that in that same weekend, you do a Fran style exercise where someone may not have the right technique and Sometimes when you scale and scale and scale, as it quotes or as it claims to be universal, uh, universally scalable, you can scale down and down and down without ever refining the foundational movements that you need that make 
everything else easier so that you don't have to scale down. And I, the intention is there, but again, I think it's up to the coach, right, to really follow through on these progressions and to stress the significance of sound mechanics. And that really when you see something that diverges from what we're describing, to just ask the intent, right, and really kind of raise an eyebrow as to whether or not this could be done better. And I think you and I agree that it, it certainly can. Um, I have a question based on how you build trust with athletes. It sounds like you kind of have always created these individual relationships, especially dating back to your time with the ACL screening and working in creating an eye for each athlete at a time. It, it, I would imagine that having the experience that you bring to the table, it builds a lot of trust. Here's someone who is a professional athlete. Um, here's someone who has uh, created a, a practice that has worked for themselves outside of uh, a competitive football setting and in the gym as well in powerlifting. Do you have a, a certain uh, level of appreciation for that experience that lets you be a leader in the gym and lets you kind of work with these clients in a, a motivating way? Um, or do you just really see it as kind of who you are? It's what you do. Um, it doesn't really have to do with you as a former professional athlete. I think that's a great question. And I think there's really some magic to that, what you asked me there. Um, it's about, a lot of it's about getting buy-in and building rapport with, with, uh, with your athletes or your clients. And I think that, um, you know, I think when we're all younger and we're starting out on this journey, we want to learn about sets and reps and intensities and training volumes and exercises. But then you really, you know, especially in my business now, I just noticed that, you know, that's not where all the answers are. I mean, I mean, it might be as little as a third of it. You know, I think a big part of it is connecting with people, building rapport, uh, being professional, um, you know, and, and being able to just have presence and have meaningful interactions with people so that you can work together to create the outcomes that you want. And, you know, I, I always feel like I've had a good knack for, for mentoring people and bringing people along and, and coaching people through that. I was the Dino's uh, offensive line coach and strength conditioning coach for, for a little over a year. And, uh, when I coached our offensive line for the one year that I did after playing professional football, we had four out of five of the linemen go on to be all-stars for the entire league. So wow. uh, the following year they had the same old line and they only had one guy be an all-star. So I felt like I was able to connect with those athletes and establish rapport and just get the most out of them. And I think part of that is, Part of that is a gift, being in the locker room, having younger brothers, being a mentor to people throughout my life. But I really feel like another part of it is just having um, having the passion behind it, you know, being really passionate about what you do, showing up every day and really just being, you know, being in your heart and, and, and coming from that. You know, I think, uh, you know, if you make it about the people and you understand that it's bigger than just you, you're, you're going to make a difference. You know, you're going to impact people positively. And I think that's ultimately what people want. Um, and just to touch on your question, what I noticed was uh, in the stamps locker room, uh, specifically, there's, 
you know, and I'm just going to put it out there. There's a lot of people with, uh, with some bigger egos there. And, uh, I worked on my functional movement. Um, I was, uh, I went, I did my move, move nat, uh, certification. I got my level two and there's eight people in the class and I'm with like, you got to imagine I'm, I was like 285 pounds, uh, ex professional offensive lineman. And I'm, and I'm in this move nat course with eight other people. And, you know, they're all like parkour, you know, move, you know, <laughs> movement type people. And it's me. Uh, there's this other MMA guy. He's, he's like over 200 pounds and then everyone else. And uh, it was actually me and this MMA guy that got our certifications and everybody else didn't make it. They had to resubmit afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I moved well for a big man. I really took pride in, in doing that. Um, so what I would do when I was in the stamps gym was I would I would be able to perform exercises that would really expose people's weaknesses, and I'd just do it right in front of them. I'd be mm. like, hey, I want you to try something. Let's try and do this. And and they look at me and ultimately they they just knew that they couldn't. But here I was, this guy that was two hundred eighty five pounds, and I could just do it pretty easily. And and I'd be like, okay, why can't you do that? And they, you know, they'd be like, well, I don't know, you know. And and you're like, okay, you got to develop this, this, and this, and you just got to do this one exercise. And you would just, you could just see the ultimate buy-in because they would be, you know, their egos were kind of didn't know what to do with that. They're like, and then you give them the answer, and then they're like, hey, if I just do these one, this one thing, I can be awesome. Uh huh. And then they start performing better. They start feeling better. They're more efficient in the way that they move. And and then they want to come back for more, right? You know? Oh, yeah. You know, a simple uh, example that I've experienced in having worked with many weightlifters and crossfitters and powerlifters as well, these sports that are occurring only in the sagittal plane with repetitive hip flexion, right? Whether it's the hinging in the lift or the hinging in the squat that get – you know, really like exacerbated anterior hip or I would say anterior hip pain that reveals itself somewhere else in the body. Sorry, there's just a little echo here. Um, just encouraging them, hey, if we develop posterior strength uh, and involve eccentric loading in this where we're not always just kind of crashing down to the bottom uh, and we involve this with an appropriate progression, we can do some really good good work. That's kind of like an instance of one exercise that could change someone's uh, total thinking on something. Yeah, absolutely. Like how, how, you know, are we hinging properly? Maybe we need to do more of an eccentric loading uh, on that posterior chain, you know, um, depending on, you know, a posture, like you said, and, you know, just, just giving those little interventions, right. Just making it a little bit better and, and then saying, Oh man, you know what, uh, that made all the difference for me. And, uh, now I'm performing better. Um, I'm less tired after games. Um, what else do you got for me? What else can I work on? You know, and pretty soon people started asking you for workouts and, you know, it, it was just a lot of fun to be in that locker room and to be with those athletes and, and to just interact with them on that level and really give them something special, right. They, they, they felt like they had an edge. That's awesome. And, I think it's – am I coming through it with a little echo on, on your end? I've got a little reverb on my side, but I, I think it will be all right. Last week with our guest, we spoke about the importance of having not just buy-in with the big numbers you can put up or that your athletes can put up, 
but with like we've been discussing being focused on movement quality and i think the extension to that that we've spoken about now is not just and this is for listeners who may be seeking a coach whether it's in person or from afar not just a coach who has a good eye and who prioritizes movement over load perhaps but someone who just communicates well with their athletes their athletes speak highly of them Uh, i i think that touches on what you said just by like coming from the heart having it be from a very passionate sincere place uh, is going to make all the difference because uh, like those those prs on social media are exciting they're cool to see but that doesn't translate necessarily to a program that might be best for you like in business they say you know you want to have an a grade team with a B product rather than an A product with a B grade team. It's the same thing when it comes to finding a program that's right for you. You know, I would rather have the right people in place. And even if they're not the best programmers, but they're best able to communicate, you know, the intention of a, of a specific workout, they can communicate the direction of a specific program. Even if there are others who can program under like scientific principles better but they're just a better teammate they can communicate better with their clients i would take that any any day of the week yeah and there's i think there's a old like uh eastern proverb uh i'm not sure where i'm getting this from but uh you know it goes uh it goes the uh right person with the right method obviously you know good fit right but you know people in the western society they put too much too much into the method but in this Eastern proverb, they say, you know, the, the right method with the wrong person is still wrong, you know? Yeah. And so the wrong method with the right person, you know, could be right, you know? So, so it, I think that you're right. I think it's more about the person um, and putting more stake in, in, in the people. And I think people are wising up to that. You know, our culture is, is, is rapidly shifting. And I think, uh, you know, interpersonal connection and community and all those things are really coming to the forefront of, of how we want to live and experience our lives. And I think we're starting to catch up with other societies and cultures in that regard where, you know, I think, uh, 15, 20 years ago, most people were watching TV and, and coming home and living largely a life of isolation unfortunately and and you know now now you're finding people are getting rid of their tvs and they're joining crossfit gyms or they're joining you know different different uh different uh community aspects and and really trying to you know go on places like meet up or join facebook groups and and i think we're just becoming more outwardly social and and we're really starting to understand the value of having having those people in our lives that are going to help uh mentor us and help create community and uh and and we're really putting more stake in that uh that sort of thing which is which is really positive i think oh absolutely now with all that's gone into your uh pedigree and that represents your pedigree that that would involve your education in human sciences or performance sciences coaching and nutrition as well as your time as an athlete and your time as a strength and conditioning coach, do you have any advice for those who are perhaps getting into the field, listening to this as for where they might get their most or their best bang for their buck? What's ultimately going to, to set them up for the, the best success considering what we've described or, or kind of are in agreement upon as being really important when training athletes. Okay. Uh, well, th- this is a really interesting question. I, 
you know, and, and, you know, given the conversation that we just came from uh, in terms of putting merit in people, I think getting uh, objective feedback with a, with an open mind uh, is, is one of the best ways that you can determine areas that you might need to improve on, you know, uh, getting feedback from your clients, getting feedback from other coaches and, and collaborating with other coaches and seeing what they're doing. And, and, and that might open up a, a turn on a light bulb or open up a new avenue for you to go about, uh, to go about learning something, you know, I mean, there might be people that are really strong in one area, but they might not even be aware of other areas. You know, I'm reading books now about, uh, about building habits for people, you know, and, and I just had no idea that, uh, a lot of the, the substance and material that comes with that, you know, and, and I just stumbled upon this just through being infinitely curious and, talking to other people and, and, you know, and, uh, I started with a book recommendation, uh, which in the book they recommended another book about building habits. And, and, you know, I've gone down this rabbit hole now and, and now I'm learning and understanding how to create healthy habits in people. And that's, that's a part of the coaching that I'm doing now that's integrated with the interpersonal relationships that I build and, and the services that I offer. So, I guess my my ultimate recommendation would be to triangulate with other people and ha- and be open to receive feedback with an open mind. And I think you know, uh, amongst the people who we've interviewed, um, including those who who have reached level five senior uh, recognition on an inter- international platform in weightlifting, or uh, another who has really established a a global business in, in the strength and conditioning world, these, these coaches uh, speak to this concept uh, repeatedly, the importance uh, and just the mere fact that they were all mentored by someone. They have been open-minded. They've been willing to adapt and they've been willing to come onto this podcast and share their information. Uh, so we hope this has been very helpful for you all and Dimitri, we're, we're so thankful that, that you came on. And where can people find you either on, on social media or, or perhaps those who are uh, in your surrounding area where you are on site? Uh, so, so you can check out my website, strengthshaman.co.co. Um, and then all of my Twitter, everything is is under Strength Shaman, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and even LinkedIn if you're if you're serious like that. Um, but yeah, I'm generally pretty available online, pretty easy to get, uh, to find me and get a hold of me. Um, and then I'm training out of renegade, a training company in Calgary right now. So, um, so they've got a great facility there and, and, you know, I'm just, uh, working and growing my business through, through that platform, which is great. Awesome. Well, uh, Dimitri, hopefully this is just the beginning of a, a good relationship. I, I've really enjoyed this chat. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Zach. I really appreciate it.